You know, I really thought that God was actually going to give me a break and take me a different direction this week. I'm always open to him redirecting when I'm talking about stewardship, if you know what I mean. And last weekend, right after the service, I zipped to the airport, got on an airplane, headed down south to California, interview a couple of uh, worship pastor candidates that we're looking at. We're without a worship pastor right now, and, and uh, we're in the hands of our capable volunteers, and they're doing a great job. But I went down to interview a couple of people, and I was just wide open. She said, God, if you just want to take me in a different direction, that would be awesome. More than happy to be bumped on this particular topic. And I thought I was on the right track when I sat down in the seat, row 27 of a plane that only has 27 rows, back corner against the window, and the guy who comes down the aisle sits next to me is a 300-pound hairy guy who decided to wear a tank top on the airplane. (laughs) That should be illegal in so many ways. And then the guy right in front of me, right before we did, decides to hurl his cookies right in the seat in front of me. I'm like, this is not off to a good start, God, at all. I thought we were going to go, you know, that that would have been an excuse to go in a different direction. Then I got the flu on Thursday. I mean, I've been like death warmed over laying at home. I thought God was going to let me off the hook. Apparently not. Here we go. All right. In ancient times, when the king of Siam, or what is now modern-day Thailand, wanted to cripple an enemy, he would use a very interesting method in order to make that happen and to get that job done. He would send his enemy a white albino elephant as a gift. White albino elephants in that culture were considered sacred. So when the king sent you one, you had to accept it. You had to look after it. You couldn't let it die because if you let it die, the king let you die. So you had to look after this elephant. Now you know where you get that stupid game that we play every Christmas when you bring a dumb gift and go home with something even dumber. You know what I'm talking about? That's where it came from, all right? A white albino elephant would cripple the king's enemy because it took huge amounts of effort and resources just to keep the thing alive. All of the enemy's focus and energy had to go with feeding this beast that was suddenly in the middle of their lives. They had to feed it, wash it, take care of it, I mean, scrub the thing. They just had to look after it from top to bottom. That's the way that it was. Because of that, they had no time or passion left over to live life or to threaten the king. It was only a matter of time until the person didn't own the elephant anymore. The elephant owned them. I believe the devil has given many of us the white element of unrecognized affluence. Some of you were shocked. A lot of emails last week about the little statistics that I used. About the fact that the people sitting in this room, for the most part, are in the top 2% of the wealthiest people in the world. It's like, I didn't know that. I think it's a good thing for us to know. The scary part of it is that we don't even recognize it as affluence. Some would go as so far as to say that many of us in modern-day culture have been affected with affluenza. I understand that in a big way, all right? When I talk to people about their financial burdens, they often use words like buried, strapped, overwhelmed, all-consuming. Their burdens started small with, with a little impulsive buy here, five easy payments of 1995 over here, Staying up too late and buying seven George Foreman grills, even though you didn't know what they were for, that kind of stuff. Slowly but surely, it got out of control, and now they feel like they're living with an elephant, and the elephant's going to crush them. Over the years, I have seen and participated in, I'm not calling a, a, a no foul on this one in my life, 
have seen and participated in what I call white elephant financial mistakes. Number one is this in your outline. I think this is a huge white elephant financial mistake. It's too much debt. We don't like to hear it, but we are addicted to debt in North America. Americans owe, you ready for it? $775 billion to credit card companies as of right now. 775 with eight zeros behind it. There's over 700 million credit cards being used today in this country alone. That's more than two for every person, regardless of age. I mean, this is scary. Even our babies have credit cards. It's a scary thought. We've learned to live off of money that we don't have. And it doesn't just happen with credit cards either. It starts with two of the largest purchases that most of us make in a lifetime when we buy too much car or too much house. If you need to prove my point, drive past any open lot in Whatcom County and you will see a line of white elephants lined up on the corner with for sale signs in the front of them. Vehicles are a status symbol. We find ourselves drooling at the age of 16 for this sweet ride with spinners and a stereo that belongs in a stadium instead of in a car. And, when, and, <coughs> and one of those uh, vehicles that's got so many bells and, and buttons and whistles that we don't even know what they are. I mean, come on, Christ the King. How many of you right now, if I walk to your vehicle, I could get in and just go, what's that button do? And your answer would have to be, I have no idea, but I've got one, right? It's kind of the way it works. My first car was a 1978 Honda Civic. Its best feature was the fact that it was, the, it was the same color as duct tape. So when it rusted through from the inside out, I could just mend that baby up and keep right on driving. It was the grossest car you've ever seen, but there were two beautiful things about it. It was free and it was clear. That was nice. I'm not telling you to sell your vehicles. I'm asking you to check your heart over why it is you drive what you do and do a gut check over whether or not you're living within your means or whether you've fallen to the victim of the white elephant of death. Too much car and then very often too much house. I mean, the mortgage crash has affected so many people here in Whatcom County. This is the same principle of living within your means, only on a much larger scale. I'm just going to warn you, if you ever hear yourself saying, I just have to have it, watch out. Because pretty soon... It will have you. Cars, cars, houses, and credit all add up to a beast that can consume your world if you don't use solid biblical stewardship principles. Number two, here's number two in the white elephants. It's too much what I don't know can't hurt me. This is the approach to finances that says, as long as I keep ignoring the overdue notices and the negative balances at the bottom of my statements, as long as I pretend they're not there, they're really not there. They're never going to catch up with me. So you go to the mailbox every day dreading it. And then you open it up and you look at the bottom and you see the minus sign and it's just like, la, 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 la. I don't know anything. It's not really there. Ignorance is dangerous in the world of money. It's biblical to know what you make, what you owe, where it is, and where it goes. That should be a wrap, right? I'm not going to do it, but it should be. I'll say it one more time. It's biblical to know what you make, what you owe, where it is, and where it goes. Number three, white elephant mistake is not enough word. I mean, I read my Bible and it is absolutely implicit about finances. It doesn't pull any punches at all. One of my favorite verses, Proverbs 21:20, says this, stupid people spend money as fast as they get it. I love that verse. It's like, is there any questions on what he was actually meaning when he wrote that? 
Stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. It's like, wow. I thought God was supposed to be really nice about this one. He is. I'll get to it in just a few minutes. That's blunt. It's also true. And God says this, Malachi 3. I've read it every week for the past couple of weeks. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord God Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you'll not have room enough for it. Scripture also says this in the New Testament. If you want to go new with me, 2 Corinthians 9 says this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, did you notice how specific God's wisdom is here? If you go back through Malachi and 2 Corinthians, God gives you an amount. He gives you a location. He gives you an open invitation to test him. When you go back through the New Testament principle, you find the principles of sowing and reaping. You put a lot in, a lot comes back to you. Not that we give to get, but we give because God continues to give. You see a call to generosity. You see a purposeful plan of doing it regularly, week in, week out, and also a check. Then God goes on and says, there's no room for grudging compliance here. You don't get to do it with, fine then, I'll just give God his tip. God says, no, 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 no. Not interested, thank you very much. Apparently we have other issues we're going to work on first. God is very specific in his call. Grace the King, I'm not feeling good, so I'm not going to pull any punches. How specific are we with regards to our obedience? I didn't say it, he did. Number four, white elephant mistake I've seen over and over again is not enough generosity. According to the Bible, generosity is the end goal of our financial world, not stockpiling, okay? Just so we know that. As a follower of Jesus, I am blessed in order to be a blessing. But here's the issue with generosity. When I'm not generous, I wrap my hand around something that's not mine. I wrap my hand around it because I need control over it, because I worked hard for it, and everybody else, including God, better just back off and keep their grubby fingers off of my stuff because this belongs to me. Here's the problem with that. When you've got your hands wrapped so firmly around it that it can't budge, you're cheating yourself out of an opportunity for God to put anything new in because you don't have any capacity for it. Ah, I got it though, it's mine. Yeah, but there's no room for anything else. Am I speaking truth? God says, this is the only way. This is the position of trust. This is the position of joy. This is the position of obedience and the position of surrender. We have to learn to wrap our fingers, to unwrap our fingers around things that don't belong to us. The only answer is to live with an open hand. Here's the final mistake. Not enough Jesus. I talked last week about if you wanted to talk to a hockey expert, you'd probably call Wayne Gretzky. If you were going to talk to... If you were going to talk about computers, you'd talk to either Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. I got convicted by all the Apple users. Good grief. You guys are hostile. My goodness. <laughs> Equal shout out on both sides, all right? Good, man. Unbelievable. And if you were going to talk to an expert about money, 
I don't know if many people would think to listen to Jesus, but he's got so much to say about it, it's unbelievable. And I've been talking way too much, so let's hear Jesus on money. All right, we get to hear Ben Bernanke on finances. We get to hear all these different guys on finances. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 10, says this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Oh, by the way, this is Jesus talking to a group of religious people. I think we're going to find that very interesting in a few minutes. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm going to say it again. You cannot serve both God and money. Some of you are going, I, I, I think I can. Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Uh, yeah, it said detestable. Not slightly offensive. Not borderline bad. Detestable. Do you know what detestable is? Detestable is ugh. That's God's reaction to the stuff that we think is important. Let's review the content from last week that comes right out of the word. It also wraps up in this passage as well. In this passage, Jesus says again, there's a difference between worldly wealth and true riches. You can have lots of stuff, but that doesn't mean you're rich because only the stuff that's going to go into eternity is actually going to last. And the last time I checked, there are only two parts of this world that are eternal, God and people. That means my investment can only be in two places if I'm going to hook it to the back of my soul and take it with me into eternity. God's word and people. Can anybody tell me in Ferndale and in Bellingham what the two things are in this world that are eternal? They are God's word and people. That's where the investment's supposed to be. Jesus then goes on and says, actually, your property belongs to somebody else. I love that. He says, actually, your stuff doesn't belong to you. It actually belongs to someone else's property. Would anyone like to guess a hazard as to who that someone just might be? I think Jesus is talking about his dad. That would be God. When I look back on that verse, I scan to look for the name of Grant in that verse anywhere. It's not there. Do you see your name anywhere? Some of you are going, no, but I can find all the letters, and if I put them together, yeah. <laughs> I tried that too. He then goes on and says, there's only room for one God in your life, and it's not made of leather and filled with paper and plastic. My friends, God doesn't give a rip about your bank balance. I love what Jesus then goes on to say to this sneering, money-hungry group of religious leaders. He's picking on the pastors. I love that. That's good. Just reaches out, grabs a hold of him, and basically says this. You guys are out here doing your best to dance and play this justification game in front of people. And you can explain away God's teaching all you want to. But God knows your heart, so I've got a wake-up call for you. The stuff you think is important means absolutely nothing to God. 
He doesn't care about your stockpile. He doesn't care about all of the, the drippings that you have hanging all over your life. He doesn't give a rip. The only thing he cares about is your soul because your soul is the only part of you that's eternal. This is the bottom line when it comes to this. Nothing competes with God like money. It's the easiest idol we have, especially in this affluent society that we're living inside of. Nothing competes with God like money. And I love the fact that he pushes this group of religious people up against the wall and says, basically, here's what you need to do. You're spending your time uh, explaining away God's truth, and instead, here's what you need to understand. Someday, you're not going to have to justify yourself in front of people. You're going to have to justify yourself in front of God, and this is God's standard. So what you're going to do with it? Pretty blunt, huh? I mean, some of you go, I don't know, Grant. I don't know if, not, if nothing competes with God like money. You know, let's think about it. When I've got lots of money, what don't I need anymore? I don't need security. I got lots of that. I don't need satisfaction. I got plenty of that to go around. I don't need sustenance. I can go to any restaurant I want to, any time that I want to. And God says, yeah. But here's what you've forgotten. Money is fleeting and it will not satisfy because man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus goes on, Matthew 6. He goes in a little deeper. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's something to notice. God's got an issue with storage units. He got an issue with storage units. I'm not saying I got to go get rid of my store. I'm saying God's got an issue with storage units. I checked it out again. Started doing this five years ago. Fastest growing cottage industry in the United States of America for the fifth year running is what? Storage units. We ain't got room enough for our own stuff, so we got to get extra stuff and rent space to put it in, even though we never needed enough to have to go and get it, except once or twice every couple of years. And God's like, what are you doing? I'm not bad-mouthing storage units. All I'm saying is this. Jesus is reminding us we're not supposed to be stockpiling here. We're supposed to be investing in eternity. And the only thing that's go it's going to go all the way through to eternity are two things, and they're God's Word and people. Jesus makes a great definition here as well. He says that your treasure is whatever captures your heart. It could be a guitar amp. It could be a Hummer, even though they're not going to make them anymore. It could be those season tickets. Whatever it is that captures your heart, God says, that's your treasure. And here's the problem with your treasure. It can become an idol if you're not careful. I began this series by asking a question. The question went like this. Who or what gets the best of you? So when it comes to this, Christ the King, who or what gets the best of you? In this area, does God have you or your leftovers? I know that's blunt but I think it needs to be said. Jesus, I'm going to do a little stuff on the side here, but the rest of it, you just keep your hands off my stuff. Does God have you or your leftovers? 
What's the bottom line here? It's that stewardship is a matter of the heart. The Bible says if your heart's with Jesus, then your treasure should be there too. It's a matter of the heart. Here's the last one. We get ready to wrap up because I'm running out of voice. Luke 12, 15 says this. Then he said to them, Jesus talking again, watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. Jesus says it's sneaky. It's going to sneak in the side door. You're not even going to see it coming. All of a sudden, your eyes are going to get distracted. Happened to me on my way to the office this morning. I'm driving down, and I have no idea what a Lamborghini was doing on the guide meridian. But it went past me at about 7 a.m. this morning on my way into the office. Pulled beside me. Woof! And I went, oh. I want that. <laughs> I do. I... Such a nice pretty color of red disappearing from me so quickly. Right? It's in there. Now I want to remind you of something again because this is where Christians, we just get it so wrong. Don't forget the passage from last week that Jesus said everything you have you're supposed to enjoy. You know? I got a fairly beat up trailblazer. I enjoy it. I like it. It's got a nice stereo system in it. I've got seat warmers for the first time in my life. Thank you, Jesus, for seat warmers, especially when you got the flu. It just feels good. Anyway, I need to stop talking because the meds are kicking in, all right? But Jesus makes it clear that greed is sneaky, that you need to watch out for it but that you also need to make sure that it never defines you. What a tragedy to think that you would define your soul by the kind of car you drive or the kind of house you live in or the kind of designer clothes you wear or don't. What a tragedy to think that your whole life could be summed up in a pile of stuff instead of the reflections and gratitude of a large number of people. Here's the bottom line. You're not what you own. You're not what you own. You're who you belong to. And Jesus just said, you can't belong to two masters. That's the choice that needs to be made today. Disobedience or obedience. Control or surrender. God or money. You know, I did. last week when I kind of rolled through the plan, I had an amazing opportunity. I got to talk to three different people who are, they're just checking out Christianity and Jesus. Here was their comment. They said, so do you usually get a lot of heat when you preach this stuff? I'm like, you have no idea. You have no idea. They're like, so these are unsaved people. Remember this. They go, why? Warren Buffett's got a financial plan. Ben Bernanke's got a financial plan. Everybody and their dog seems to have a financial plan. Don't you think it would just be wise if we as the people just here, whether we believe in God or not, actually knew what God's financial plan was? I'm like, thank you. I don't know why Christians get so wrapped up about it. Apparently that those that don't even know Jesus yet don't have an issue with it. So I was thinking about the way people think about stewardship and tithing this whole past week. I think a lot of people see giving to God as God's way of taxing people, right? God's this big government up in the sky, just like, tax them again. I want my cut, right? 
we laugh, but that's kind of the direction we go. I mean, God's just this big government, and his answer to everything is it's going to slap a tax on the people. And we end up boiling God down into this big meanie who just wants my fun and my stuff. Well, I'd like to propose another angle for you through a different question. I've been thinking about this all week. Hopefully the meds didn't kick in too much. Here's the question. What if one of God's gifts to you through stewardship was protection? What if he asked us to get this right in our lives? Because he knew as people that we were prone to falling into very, very predictable traps. And he didn't want us to spend any time in the bottom of a hole. What if God loved us so much that he knew, left to our own, we would just turn this little thing into an idol and spend all of our time trying to get more of it? What if his heart was to just stop and say, you know what, there's a better way. And if you do it, I promise you, this will never, ever be an idol in your life. And you'll never find yourself looking at two masters. Because you'll only be following me. I mean, think about it. When I use godly stewardship, God protects me from fear because he owns it all. God protects me from greed because I don't want it all. God protects me from loss because his resources are unfathomable. And he protects me from having to have control over something because when I relinquish control, he's in control. Isn't that an amazing gift? I know we come up with excuses. I can't give. Why? Because I'm afraid I'll never have enough. That would be fear. I can't follow God in this area because truthfully I'm just never satisfied. That would be greed. I can't trust God because if I give something away I might not have what I already have. That would be control. I can't be a generous person because... That just means that I, well, I don't have any more excuses. I just don't want to. And what we're really saying when we say that is I have to do this my way. Has anybody ever met anybody that's completely consumed by money? I have. And they all have the same thing in common. They're terrified to lose anything, so they control everything in their relentless pursuit of acquiring more. Has anyone ever met a person who was absolutely consumed with being a generous steward? I have, and they all have the same thing in common. They have no fear in being generous because it all belongs to Jesus, and the only thing they're consumed with is loving Jesus, and that brings them insurmountable peace. I'll leave this with you. It was written by Arne Garborg sometime in the early 1900s. For money, you can have everything, it is said, but that's not true. You can buy food, but not an appetite. Medicine, but not health. Soft beds, but not sleep. Knowledge, but not intelligence. Glitter, but not comfort. Fun, but not pleasures. Acquaintances, but not friendships. Servants, but not faithfulness. Gray hair, but not honor. Quiet days, but not peace. The shell of all things you can get for money but never the kernel. That cannot be had for money. So here's the deal. I'm not asking you for anything. 
I've done a stewardship series every year for the last seven years, and I'm going to keep my streak alive. I'm not asking you for anything. But make no mistake, God's asking you for your obedience to I hope to create a very tense moment in your car on the way home. If you're married, I'm hoping the tense moment will be when one of you has the courage, and just in case you're wondering, if you are married, husbands, it's your job, so man up. But somebody in the car to have the courage to say, not are we going to give or not. Are we going to be obedient to what Jesus said or not? You know what's cool about that? That means it's not between me and you. You leave me out of it. I've had this conversation with my wife. Are we going to be obedient or not? Are we going to surrender or not? If you make that decision, what do you need to do next? You need to start. You may need to start small and build. You may need to take the Financial Peace University from Dave Ramsey. I think it's fantastic material. We've got a group about halfway through it. There's another group coming through in, uh, in five or six weeks. You could take the Financial Peace University. It teaches these principles. And actually, I mean, you get nuts and bolts in it. We've got about 80 plus people doing it right now. Very courageous to tackle that problem. You've got to start making a decision, and you've got to start deciding whether or not you're going to be obedient. Now, don't give me the, you know, well, I did it. I tried. I tried tithing for four whole days, and nothing changed. Uh, may have taken you 30 or 40 years to get to this place. It might take you a while to work yourself back. But you have to start somewhere. So much of life dies in the world of good intentions. Amen? I'm going to do it someday. Someday down the road. I'll tell you about the moment when I decided. God bless Alan Brim. Uh, Alan was an elder in our church at Nooksack. And as I told you at the beginning of this little two-week piece, attached to you give yourself away, because that's what stewardship is. At the beginning, I told you a story about even though I've been a pastor for 20 plus years, for the first nine years of my ministry, I just didn't do this. And in doing so, I was telling God that basically he could take a hike and just keep his hands off my stuff. Alan Brim was an elder in our church. He was also our treasurer. And one day he asked me if we'd go out for lunch together, and I did. And in a very kind and gentle way, he said, Grant, as a minister of the gospel, I think you're missing something. And this has nothing to do with our bottom line or your wallet. He said, this is what I think you need to hear from one of your elders. I'm disappointed that you would deprive God out of an opportunity to show you just how strong he could be. Well, if you put it that way, <laughs> I'm just disappointed that you would deprive God of an opportunity to show you just how strong he can be. Let's pray.